The epistle is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. O Lord, have mercy on us. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 18th chapter. Taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and, following him, and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. O Lord, have mercy on us. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It makes sense that when Jesus speaks in parables, he's difficult to understand. Last week we heard about just this very thing happening. Jesus told a parable and no one, not even the disciples, understood what it meant. They had eyes and ears, but they could not see or hear. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why Jesus spoke in parables. As perplexing as it is, he spoke in parables 
so that the mystery of the kingdom of God would remain hidden to those outside. The key to the parables is always Jesus himself. His death for the sins of the world and his resurrection from the grave are the revelation of God's kingdom. It is not like the kingdoms of this world that rule by might and power, in strength and in glory. Rather, Jesus rules in his kingdom by suffering and death, humiliation, lifted up on the throne of the cross. Those who are in Christ, you who are in Christ, share in his kingdom. And that means that in this life, you are lowly and despised, bearing crosses, suffering, and dying. Knowing that is how you can make sense of the parables. You need the key, otherwise they remain dark sayings. It's no wonder that people struggled to understand the parables. But that doesn't explain what happened in our gospel lesson this morning. Jesus said to the twelve, to his closest disciples, who had heard the mysteries of the kingdom of God, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. It couldn't be any plainer than that. He wasn't cryptic about it. He wasn't telling them riddles. He didn't leave them guessing. He didn't say to them, something terrible might happen when we get to Jerusalem. He gave it to them straight. The Son of Man will die and rise. And he even went into such detail how he would be mistreated, spit upon, flogged, and how long he would remain in the grave. Three days and he will rise. What's not to understand? It was as clear as day. It couldn't have been any clearer. I think to make sense of the disciples' lack of understanding, it's helpful if we remember another similar episode that featured the apostle Peter. It was another time that Jesus was explaining to the disciples how he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and on the third day be raised. He said that all to them just like he did today. And Peter pulled Jesus aside and said to him, rebuking him, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter hadn't understood. And in his misunderstanding, he ended up sounding like Satan. Jesus turned around and rebuked Peter in turn and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It wasn't that Peter or the other disciples couldn't understand the words of Jesus. It wasn't that they didn't understand the meaning of the words. It was that they believed it couldn't possibly be true. It couldn't possibly be true that Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, should suffer and die. They expected growth and progress for the kingdom of God, but he was telling them that they should look for humiliation and betrayal and death. He was telling them that he was going to walk straight into the hands of his enemies, that it was foreordained by God, that it was foretold even by the prophets, that it had to be. He sounded like he was out of his mind. Whatever he might say about being raised from the dead on the third day, we all know that death is death. It's the end of the story. As far as the disciples were concerned, 
Jesus was making no sense. His saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They didn't understand Jesus. Or to put it in terms of our epistle lesson today, you might say this. The disciples didn't understand love. Now that's not so surprising at first glance. Love is difficult to understand. Folks say that all the time. Love can be perplexing, unreasonable, and frustrating. But when folks talk about not understanding love, especially nowadays, what they usually mean is that they don't understand the feeling of love. Why does it come and why does it go? Why can't you control it and why does it make you do such foolish things? But when I say that the disciples didn't understand love, I don't mean that they didn't understand the feelings. What they didn't understand was the action of love. One of the things that really stands out from our epistle lesson, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the things that really stands out is that all of the language Paul uses to describe love is action language. He uses verbs. He talks about what love does as opposed to what love feels. Sometimes it doesn't come through so clearly because we're very used to the words. But here's an example. Paul says that love is patient. More literally, what he says is love suffers for a long time. Love suffers for a long time. Or here's another one. Love is not resentful. More literally, love keeps no record of wrongs. Paul describes love in terms of actions instead of feelings. But what's even more remarkable is that the actions require setting aside your feelings. Think about what it means to keep no record of wrongs. Have you ever tried to do that, to keep no record of wrongs? If someone sins against you, your first experience is one of pain, which may then take shape into sadness or anger or bitterness, maybe a desire for revenge. But the wrong hurts you. And it sets off a chain reaction of feelings. But notice what love does. Regardless of how it feels, love keeps no record of wrongs. It is not in the business of keeping score, of trying to get even, of holding anything against its beloved. It suffers. It absorbs the pain. It keeps on loving, forgetful of the wound. Love couldn't do that if it was just a feeling. In fact, your feeling of pain is itself a record of the wrong done to you. But love keeps no record of wrongs. That is difficult to understand. It's difficult to understand if only because we know that love like that is going to get walked all over. Loving like that is a recipe for being taken advantage of. In fact, that's really a theme throughout all of the ways that Paul describes love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love sounds gullible. Love sounds naive. It sounds like the kind of thing that gets you into a bad relationship and never gets you out. It's fine to be patient and kind, not to envy or boast, not to be arrogant or rude, not to insist on your own way for a while, sure. But there's a limit, isn't there? 
There's a point where you've given and you have nothing more to give. There's a point where you've borne all things, believed all things, hoped all things, endured all things, but to keep on doing it would be completely foolish. You know the conventional wisdom. You have to take care of yourself in order to take care of anyone else. When the plane starts to go down and the oxygen masks fall from the overhead compartment, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to put the mask on yourself first before you try to help anyone else. That's reasonable. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense is love. What doesn't make sense is Jesus steadily making his way into Jerusalem, knowing what's waiting for him there, knowing that his enemies are ready to arrest him, subject him to a kangaroo court, abuse him, mock him, spit on him, flog him, and then crucify him, killing him in the most shameful way imaginable. It doesn't make sense. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. If you have to go to Jerusalem, if you have to face your enemies, let's at least put up a bit of a fight. You remember Peter drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. That's enough of that, Jesus said to him as he healed the servant's ear. That's enough of that. Peter still didn't understand love. He was still setting his mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. He was still, like Satan, unwilling to let love be love. There's more to our gospel lesson this morning. There's that story of Bartimaeus. We, hear, we learn his name in the other gospels. There's that story of Bartimaeus sitting by the roadside, blind. I wonder what it was like for him as he sat near the road by Jericho. He couldn't see what was coming, and so when the crowd was making such a commotion, he asked what it was all about. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. When he heard that, he started raising such a fuss that they told him to pipe down. But what did he do? He cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Those, by the way, I think are some of Jesus' favorite words to hear. Have mercy on me. They're some of his favorite words because they are an expression of faith. Faith which looks to Jesus for every good thing and expects him to hear when we call. That's what the second commandment is all about. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. We know instinctively that we shouldn't use God's name for cursing or lying or doing other abominable things. But what should we use it for? To call upon him in every trouble. To pray. To plead for his mercy. Lord, have mercy. But he promises to answer. And so Jesus stopped and he commanded that Bartimaeus be brought to him. And he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has saved you. I wonder what it was like for blind Bartimaeus who trusted in Jesus and received this generous gift of mercy in the restoration of his sight, who then followed Jesus, glorifying God, who then, with his new eyes, could have watched as everything took place just as Jesus told his disciples. With his new eyes, he would have seen Jesus go up to Jerusalem, Jesus delivered over to the Gentiles, Jesus mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. With his new eyes, he could have seen them flog him. And after they flogged him, raise him up on the cross to crucify him. I wonder what it was like for blind Bartimaeus, who received the gift of sight and with his new eyes 
what he saw was love incarnate. He saw Jesus, patient and kind, not envying or boasting, not arrogant or rude, not insisting on his own way, not rejoicing at wrongdoing, but rejoicing with the truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things, even death on the cross for his beloved. Imagine that. You've lived your whole life long, for as long as you can remember, in the dark, unable to see anything, consigned to begging by the side of the road, utterly dependent on charity, the occasional glimpse of love from your neighbors. And one day, long after you've given up any hope, you receive your sight. And when you open your eyes, you don't simply look around and see all of the things that you longed to see, the trees and the grass and the sky and your neighbors. When you open your eyes, you see Jesus. And you see him on his way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross. You open your eyes and you see love. Blind Bartimaeus got to see what the disciples couldn't see, even though they weren't blind. He got to see what we will all see as we enter this season of Lent and make our way towards the cross and grave with Jesus. Today is the last Sunday for a while that we'll hear the word Alleluia in church. We refrain from singing Alleluia during the season of Lent as a sort of fast from the songs of joy that we anticipate at Easter. A fast is always preparation for a feast. During Lent, instead of songs of joy, our songs are centered on the cry for mercy, the cry of faith, for help in the midst of our trouble, for help in the face of our sin. During Lent, we'll be joining with blind Bartimaeus in crying out from our poverty of spirit, Son of David, have mercy on me. The great joy of this season, the somber joy of Lent, is that in answer to our cry for mercy, Jesus opens our eyes. And when we look, we too see love incarnate. We see love crucified for us. And in the feast that's waiting for us with the return of the Alleluia on Easter, then we will see love that never ends. May the peace and love of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.